Uh, if you take out your Bibles, we're starting a new uh, series this morning uh, in the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians. And uh, so we've got some background work to do, and I hope you um, enjoy that. For me, it is so orienting to know what's underneath and behind the book. And then when I hear the message, I know from which it comes and what it's about. So we'll do our, our good hard work this morning here. Um, I, I love uh, letters of encouragement. I don't know about you, but I do. Um, I really love receiving them, of course, but I actually like writing them. I try to write about two or three um, every week because I know the value of seeing in somebody's own hand with a pen on paper a kind of appreciation. In fact, I, I love it to the point that I keep mine. And so on the third drawer on the left-hand side of my desk, not that I'm inviting you to come look for them or anything, I, I keep especially those thank you cards that have been most meaningful to me over the years. Uh, there's one woman in particular who is so good at it, and I'll tell you why her letters mean the most to me. It's because of the specificity. A good thank you note has specifics. If you've ever gotten one of those comments where it says something like, and I'm not trying to embarrass or make anybody uncomfortable here, but when it says something like, thanks for all you do, it's almost a way of saying, I have no idea what you do. You probably ought to be thanked, and I guess I'll do it. It's my turn. Uh, but when, it, when somebody instead writes down very specifically, you know, thank you for that coffee that you delivered to me. I'm amazed that you remember my particular preference. Or thanks for picking up my kids at the school. I love that they trust you and see you as an extension of our family, right? Or thank you for meeting with me and talking with me and for being transparent about that part of your life. I feel so encouraged to know that you would trust me with that and I'm honored to know that this is something we walk through together, right? Th those are cards you go, ah, I'm gonna keep that. And, and for me, periodically, I, I'll go back over them. I'll read them on one of those crummy days, you know, where you think, does anybody like me? Is anything good happening around here? Third drawer, boom. And I start going through my favorites. Ah, yes, okay, let's work on this. Uh, so I do that. Maybe you don't. I'd like to know, think I've got a few fellows here that do the same kind of thing. But, um, but periodically I go back over them because I find them to be an encouragement to me. And the letter that we're looking at today from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians is one of those kinds of encouragement letters that any one of us would keep. It wouldn't even go in the third drawer, right? It'd be top drawer. It'd be on the desk. We would live with its encouragement. We would come back to it regularly. It would sustain us. It would help us live out the truth when we're tempted to believe in lies. Uh, the main theme of the letter of Philippians is actually hard to pinpoint. I challenged you this week, if you follow the church on uh, social media, and I would encourage you to do that. It's a great way to get information about the church. Um, I challenge you this week to read the book of Philippians through in one sitting. Uh, timed myself this week doing it in your mind. Just, just imagine a, a, how long you think it might take. Eight minutes. Sometimes we think reading scripture takes so long. The whole book, eight minutes. Eight minutes. 
I would encourage you, in fact, to read it a couple times through, maybe throughout this next week if you didn't already. Read it all the way through. Get the whole scope of the letter. Get the whole feeling and the whole vibe of the letter. But I encourage you to do this and then challenge you to see if you could identify what the main theme of the book is. It's a little bit challenging. Maybe uh, for many of you, you've heard over the years and thought yourself, well, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. It's joy. And that's, that's a good guess. That's a good option. Uh, in fact, the word joy appears in one form or another more than a dozen times. That's significant for a book that has only uh, 104 verses. But more prominent than the word joy is the repeated reference to Christ Jesus appearing, get this, more than 51 times in the 104 verses, which means every other verse, the Apostle Paul is coming back to and anchoring his message on the person of Christ. So that leads me to the assertion that the letter's theme is a call to live a Christ-centered life. And I think out of that, it produces joy. And out of that produces unity. But those are byproducts of what he is pressing us to, which is to live a Christ-centered life. Um, so kind of three main contributions of this letter, first of all, or, or features about it. First of all, it's a thank you letter. It's a thank you for a financial gift that the Apostle Paul has received from this church in Philippi. It's also a letter of encouragement to remain steadfast in their faith in the midst of some of the circumstances and even some persecution that they're enduring. And then thirdly, it's a letter of loving and gentle exhortion. So that's kind of what's, what's happening in it. But we would say the main theme, the main message, the thrust of the book is a call to live a Christ-centered life, an encouragement to do that. Um, so it seems to me that Paul is saying the Christ-centered life is worth it. It produces unity. It produces joy. Sort of get on with it. The other thing is those are not just like hallmark words. Those are not just plastic, thin, throwaway words. When Paul says that, he says that from an interesting place in, in his own life. He's writing this letter from prison. This is one of the prison epistles. Uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Four books that Paul has written from prison. I believe he's writing this from Rome around AD 62. Um, and so Paul's, what we find here is that his Christ-centered living, his Christ-centered life, has landed him in jail. So this isn't a promise, oh, Christ-centered living, all going to go good for you. No, it lands him in jail. But from jail, he's still able to say this and proclaim this and to proclaim to them to remain steadfast, this will produce joy in the midst of your circumstances. And that should incline us to listen. Um, now, Paul's incarceration here, um, probably a little more like house arrest. So that afforded him, him some liberties, like he could uh, write freely. He could receive visitors, uh, like the one that he had received delivering the gift, the Paphrodites here. Um, and this poor fellow came to visit uh, Paul, you know, to help him out and be encouragement. Got sick along the way, nearly died. So thanks, thanks for bringing this illness to your visit here. But nevertheless, this imprisonment for Paul, while it was, it was hard, um, and, and even though it wasn't as hard as it might have been in, in a different kind of jail, it still restricted his ability to travel and, and to do what he want 
And so he had to proclaim the gospel from prison. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because how tempting would it have been for the Apostle Paul to say, Lord, you've called me to be an evangelist to the Gentiles. What's up with incarceration? You know, it would be really a lot easier to do that job if I were able to move freely, travel freely, get to them, get to where they are. And yet, in the midst of all of that, what Paul has to resort to is writing letters. And praise God, for we have more scripture because of it than we would have otherwise, right? And so there we see even the providence of God in something that was difficult. Um, The church in Philippi knew of Paul's arrest. They knew of his hardship. And so they wanted to help him out. And that is why they sent this man, Epaphroditus, as sort of their ambassador. And along with him, they sent this financial gift to support Paul. And they had given Paul gifts on other occasions, at least four other occasions, to support him and to support his ministry. So you can see why Paul uh, would be fond of this church who has shown care for him in really practical ways. Also, it's worth noting there have been other churches that tried to support him or other times where Paul refused to take support and where he worked for it. So he seemed to be really judicious about what he received and when. He wasn't just an evangelist or an apostle with his hand always out, if that makes sense. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about the beginning of the church. If you want to turn in your Bibles, actually, to Acts. Um, The church in Philippi, Acts 16. uh, This is actually the first church in what is modern-day Greece. Um, I had a chance to go to Turkey and see some of these early churches. Uh, Greece is next on my list. I'd like to head over there and see some of these churches and eventually the Holy Land when it's not looking like it's about to blow up. I don't know when that will be, but nevertheless. Um, Yeah. So it was in what's modern-day Greece. It was a church that Paul had planted 10 or 12 years uh, earlier. And so I have a little map just to show you where kind of where it's at here, if, if this helps you a little bit. You can see where it is in relationship to Italy, right nicely situated there on the Mediterranean. Um, I have been to Ephesus. That was very cool. It was incredibly hot, though, and there were cats everywhere. No kidding, there were cats everywhere. One of the guys that I was with made a joke. There was, there was this old, like, you know, Roman-looking column, and on top of it was a cat, and he looked at it and without missing a beat said, hey, look, a caterpillar. <laughs> He was good. One of the be- I know, it's a pun. It was a good pun. We all laughed pretty good. Acts is a really great book, oftentimes to help us with our hermeneutics, just kind of understanding, especially these epistles, these letters in the New Testament, because we can get the background. What's happening? Where is this church? What's, what's going on? And so we get this in Acts. We, in Acts 16, we get a description of how this church came to be. It says uh, in verse 9, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, uh, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went out to Neapolis. And from there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the, woman, to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. 
She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And get this, this is almost a manipulative way of getting her way here. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she'd said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. How do you say no to that? No, 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 we really have to press on. Wait a minute, if you love me, if you, you know. <laughs> but one of the things we learn about this church here is that basically this is, this is a Gentile city. It has no synagogue. And if you know anything about Paul's ministry, he typically went to the synagogue first, and that's where he tried uh, to kind of establish a bit of a base of operation from which he would try to reach out to Gentiles in the area. But this is a completely Gentile city. There is no synagogue. So he goes outside the city gate where they expect to find a place of prayer, and that's where they meet Lydia, a God-fearing woman who had not converted fully to Judaism. And then she hears the gospel and gives her life to Christ, she and her family, and she becomes one of the first founders and, in fact, benefactors of the church. Um, and this passage, the passage in Acts goes on to actually talk about Paul and Silas being arrested for healing a demonic girl, and they were put in jail, and then they have this miraculous prison break, right? God gets them out. He springs them. And this is also when the jailer comes to know the Lord, he and his household, And so you have this beginning of this church. These are some of the first believers in the area that was about 10 or 12 years prior to when Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. Another kind of feature of the letter, uh, if you you might like this, is that women play uh, an important role. Uh, First of all, Lydia. So if you're looking for a little girl power here in the text, we've got Lydia. What a strong, remarkable character in Scripture. Uh, and she's, again, one of the early supporters. Paul mentions her, but then he also mentions two other women in chapter 4, Iodia and Syntyche. And he indicates that they were loyal co-workers. They worked alongside him for the sake of the gospel. He mentions them in, in this case here, however, because they're fighting with one another. They're bickering. They're locked in a feud. How would you like to have your name put in the scriptures because you're feuding with someone. Preserved for all time. Unfortunate. Uh, And basically, Paul is asking that someone would come along, a third party, to help them with uh, their dispute. Uh, Another feature of the letter is the tone, the beautiful, rich, wonderful, encouraging tone of the letter. Uh, Paul has had a really close friendship with the church. They're well organized. They have elders. They have deacons. They've supported him with financial gifts on several occasions. And so this letter from Paul, I I think arguably is the warmest and most affectionate in all of Scripture. Uh, And I think that's one of the reasons why it's really loved by the church today. So turn now to Philippians 1 and hear this tone and hear this text, which is saturated with the person of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We've got to stop here. I know there's no period, but if we wait for periods to preach, Paul will never be stopping. So you can hear this affectionate tone in the letter. You can hear his love for this church. In fact, some people have called Philippi Paul's favorite church. 
something that's missing in this letter is that you often see uh, from the Apostle Paul is a defense of his ministry or a defense of his apostleship. You know, we'll often find that, say, in Corinthians or Thessalonians. It's not necessary here. They don't doubt him. They're listening. They're receiving. They love him. Bring it, Paul. We're all ears. That's their, their posture towards him. Uh, another interesting thing about, and this is important, another interesting thing about the city of Philippi, as we read back in Acts 16, it's a Roman colony. Uh, its inhabitants are predominantly Gentiles, and they're also mostly ex-military. This is a veteran town. And uh, there are many affluent veterans here. Anybody ever been to uh, Coronado Island down in California? That's, I love visiting there. Um, it's, I think of Coronado Island when I think of Philippi. So here is this island with all these mil, uh, retired military, more admirals there per capita than like anywhere in the world, former admirals. It's a, it's a beautiful, affluent place. But Philippi is kind of like this. Uh, it has this interesting history. In, in BC 42, it had had this, this civil war. And so the Roman emperor, uh, Augustus Octavian, had given the city over basically to the retiring uh, Roman officers and soldiers so that they would repopulate it and, that it and that they would sort of remain a lingering military presence in the town to kind of keep those skirmishes at bay. And so in order to do this and to entice these veterans to settle there and to establish the town, here were the features that they advertised. You tell me if you would have bid on this. Ready? Exempt from taxes. Sold. I don't know what your property taxes did this year, but I don't like mine, and I don't even have a paved road. Exempt from taxes. Land ownership in an incredibly fertile area, not too far from the Mediterranean. Probably some good fishing nearby, I'm thinking, thinking. An autonomous government, and yet all of the rights of Roman citizenship. Anyone going to Philippi? I'll see you there, right? I'm on board. That sounds great. Uh, it almost reminded me of kind of the Homestead Act in Alaska back in, in 1898, right? Come on up. We'll give you this land if you settle it, blah, blah, blah. And because of these sort of generous offerings, there really grew to be a profound respect and even what I'll call uh, this nationalism of people so respectful and appreciative of these rights that they sort of participated in, this is the townspeople, participated in sort of the cult of the emperor, right? Where they would even have slogans where they would call him their Lord and Savior. So often when we see that phrase in the New Testament, it's in contrast to that, which was some of the predominant um, nationalism of the day. So the worship of God, as by this church in Philippi here, brought about local persecution because they're worshiping a different Lord and Savior. So while they lived in this beautiful, wonderful, affluent area, their commitment to the Lord and their faith produced that particular tension. And so it's in this kind of hotbed of nationalistic pride where the inhabitants were inclined to worship the state of the emperor, where Paul encourages these Christians who are doing something different to live as citizens of heaven. Don't get sucked in. Don't get entrapped by this nationalism around you. 
you are primarily citizens of heaven. And this is kind of what he is pressing upon them. And that is his challenge uh, to commit themselves to a Christ-centered life because this earth is not their home. Uh, So on to verse 6 here. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you can share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you uh, for all of the affection, with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we're going to work quickly through this here. Our confidence, this is the first thing I want you to take, that our confidence should be in the Lord and in his power. I think as American citizens, we have quite a lot to relate to uh, to this region in Philippi. As, as Roman citizens, that was the right that they were given, they had the confidence of all of the privileges, the rights and privileges that came from being a Roman citizen. In addition to that, they were capable. They were affluent. They were blessed with an array of natural resources. They were in an ideal location in the physical world. And even their citizenship, they were prominent citizens in the town as ex-military, as veterans and commanders and whatnot. Businesswomen like Lydia. Acts tells us descriptively this was the chief city in the entire region of Macedonia. And I think one of the temptations available for them and for us is this idea of self-confidence, self-reliance. In fact, if there were a watchword for all of Alaska, right, self-reliance would be the thing. You come into Alaska, you better be self-reliant. That is a trap that is there for them. It's here for us. Humanism, we can do it. Get her done. This cult of self-reliance is what I will call it. And Paul wants to turn their heads and to fix their attention on what ought to be the source of their confidence, the work that God is doing in them. Namely, their salvation, their participation in the gospel, and his sustaining power in the midst of their cultural opposition. So I think for us, just first application here, whether we're tempted to be overconfident or whether we're tempted to give up hope because the challenge of living a Christ-centered life is too difficult against the world's trajectory. Paul would have the believer be confident God will finish what he started. God will finish what he started. And one of the realities that we're confronted with again and again here in Paul's writing is just this beginning and ongoing work of God in our salvation, constantly taking us off of sort of the throne, thinking that it's us that's doing this. So our second sub-point, or first sub-point here, it's God who has initiated the work of our salvation. You notice that Paul doesn't say, hey, good job, guys, you did it. You got yourself saved. Way to go. Excellent. He recognizes that God is the one who began 
a good work in them. And then I'll remind you, think about this for a second. We hear this phrase so often, being confident that, you know, um, God who started this work will bring it to completion. We hear it so often, it's almost a bumper sticker mantra of Christianity in our world, right? But it's anchored in some experiences here for Philippi, for this church. First of all, think about Lydia. There's no synagogue in town. She goes out to pray with her friends. And the chief apologist and evangelist of the church shows up and shares the gospel with her. That's a God thing. Then consider this, this miraculous jailbreak, right? Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. Oh, and God springs them, and the jailer comes to know the Lord. Seems like God's at work here. And then the whole, this whole thing began with this dream that Paul had been given of this man in Macedonia. So God had been at work drawing the people of Philippi to himself against all odds. God began this work. So when he says that he began a good work in you and he'll be faithful to complete it, this isn't just empty rhetoric. It's not just a slogan. It's something they've experienced, something they've seen firsthand. Um, and I think, again, when this kind of com coming back to application here, when you and I feel strong in our faith, you know, we're just flexing, had a devotion every day this week, every single day, even posted it on social media. <laughs> it was brilliant. Having a great week. We're reminded it's God who began this work in you. It's his initiative. It's his work. And the flip side is also true. When we're crashing, when you walk past your Bible at home and you see it on the table and you go, to get the dust off of it. And you think, when was the last time I prayed except to say, oh God, give me. Or you think about, I'm really not loving my neighbor. Well, I'm wishing they would move. And you realize, I'm not crushing it right now. My discipleship is a spiral downward. Then we can remind ourselves, God will finish what he started in us. So there's great hope, whether we're flexing or whether we're crashing, salvation belongs to our God. He started it in us. He sustains it in us. He will complete it in us. God will complete, it, complete what he has started. And this word for complete here is interesting too. There are plenty of things that we complete just by, you know, barely, by the skin of our teeth. Uh, this isn't just like tripping across the finish line here. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a half marathon in town, the Hoodoo Half Marathon. I don't ever want to run a full marathon, never. I hate run. I don't ever want to run. I don't want to run. I hate it. But I thought, boy, that's about the closest I'm ever going to get, and here's an opportunity. I think I'll run that one. I was in reasonable shape at the time. I kept working for it, and I went out, and I ran it, and I hated every minute of it, just to tell you that. And I got to about four miles from the end, and I started having this incredible pain in my left leg, kind of on the side, side back of my, uh, my, my knee. I had never experienced it before. I didn't know what it was, but I could not keep a running cadence. I just, I just couldn't make my leg do it. So I had to start walking, and that was embarrassing. You know, old people are just crushing past me, one after another. Little kids, zing, there they go. I'm walking. And uh, a couple of friends, uh, Greg and my friend Dan, 
uh, came back. They knew that I was behind them. And uh, they came back down the, the route until they found me. And they walked with me to the end. And I was able to jog a little and then stop and then a little and then stop. And I finished. I completed the race. That's not the image that Paul is using here. I completed it. I completed it. Barely. But underneath this word that Paul is using here in the Greek word is, is actually perfection, to perfect something. Uh, that's why many of you, if you have the NAS or the NET version this morning, it uses the word perfect. There are things that we, you know, we stumble across the finish line, but there are other things that we, know, we bring to the point of perfection. Ladies, if you're knitting a sweater or something, you're, it's not done when you're done knitting, right? You have to block it then you've brought it to completion, perfection. Or fellows, maybe you have a woodworking project, and it's not just when you're done tacking boards together, but it's that second and third and fourth coat that you put on it after sanding with steel wool and the rest. You bring it to completion, to perfection. And kids, the dishes are not done until they've been dried and put away. You bring it to perfection, to completion getting some cross looks from the children right now. <laughs> Another little feature of this book that I think is important to recognize is the corporate dimension to it. One of the big mistakes uh, that we have as modern day readers is how we often read the scriptures with an individual mindset. We think it's written to me, just to me, this is a sole person. But this book is written to a fellowship of people these are corporate instructions. He is encouraging their, cor encouraging their corporate participation in the gospel, their group effort, living as a Christian community, and he calls all of them together to mature in love. This is not about just you. This is we. And this is one of the ways that, as Americans, as Westerners, we typically misread the scriptures because we're focused on the individual so much. This isn't a book of individual self-help. This is a book to the church of God. So we read this together. We hear this together. Since the fall of man, God has been setting out to make a sinful mankind right with the holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. The scripture is about how God has been preparing us for Christ, as we saw in our last series, the prevealing, right? And he provides us with Christ, and he is perfecting us with and in Christ. But it's we. It's not you. It's not I. It's we. And at this present time, God is perfecting his church, and one day he'll return for his church, and we will be presented to him perfect, completed, finished. Any of you perfect yet? You will be one day. Christ will perfect you. Paul says this in the book of Ephesians. He says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to what? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is what God is doing with us, the church, not just you. So I think this begs the question, then how is God doing that? And this is what verse 9 gets into. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge 
and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And so what we learn here is that our ambition needs to be to grow in love. This is how God gets on with this perfecting in us, that we would grow in love. And so Paul paints this in such a way we see love isn't just this static thing that we have. It's a dynamic process. It's something we grow in. It's something that develops. We pursue it and we mature in it. And we might say that love is something we can become skilled in. Uh, Let me show it to you this way. So this is summertime. Maybe you've already had the chance to go to a wedding. Maybe you have one coming up in the future or near future. And when we go to a wedding, we see newlyweds standing at the altar, right? Just dumb and happy, all doe-eyed, and they don't know. It just all feels good right now. They don't know. But they're in love, and it can be kind of refreshing to go back to one and go, ah, hmm, that's good. Yeah, that's good. But things change over time, and love changes over time, right? A few years into marriage, he gets fired loses his job, or the couple experiences a miscarriage. A few years later, he gets the job of his dreams. But guess what? It means they got to move, and they got to leave a lot of things that they love behind. Ten years later, he's fat and bald and pretty busy, right? And she's as beautiful as ever, but needs to be told regularly. And then, after decades of living together, We make mistakes. We sin against one another. Those things happen, and they have to be confessed. And the hard work of forgiveness has to be given. And grace beyond forgiveness has to continue to be given because memory wants to bring them up again, right? And then the heart breaks because later on, the children that they work so hard to raise, you find one of them's wayward. The greatest heartache a couple can go through. A wayward child. And then that same couple has to go through a new season together. They have to bury a parent. Or they have to move a parent into assisted living. They have to watch Alzheimer's ravage the brain and quality of life of one that brought them into the world. Then that same couple has to deal with the threat or the reality of cancer or injury or deepening depression. You see, the love that they felt at first at the altar, dumb and happy, is still there, but it's deeper, it's more robust, it's more knowing, it's more resilient, it's more hopeful, it's more forgiving, it's more gracious because they have grown in knowledge and depth of insight. Paul's not talking about marriage here. He's not talking about a couple in love. He is speaking to a church family and ordering it to do what that couple does, to grow in knowledge and depth of insight, to mature in your love for one another, our love for each other. So when a church family goes through staff changes, political polarization, social media gone awry, poor presidents, and a pandemic, like that couple, 
we go through the throes of these things which demand that we grow in knowledge and depth of insight as we love one another because we are saturated with Christ. Amen? There will always be room to grow in love. It's pretty gutsy when you think about Paul telling this church to do it. What's the occasion for this letter? It's a thank you letter. They just sent a fella who nearly died to give him a nice gift, fourth time. And he writes back, you guys should grow in love. You see his point? They love Paul easily enough, but they need to learn to grow for one another. And I would just say this. The other virtues that we pursue as Christians, friends, they're a byproduct of love. You want those other virtues? Pursue love. They come by default. Love is the cardinal Christian virtue. It's not mere sentiment. It's not, it is rooted in knowledge and understanding. It is, a, it is one that seeks the highest good for the other person. But it's not always obvious. Sometimes love has sharp edges to it. Sometimes love is tough. And so it might be that Paul was easy for them to love. But as we go in further to Paul's letter, we'll see, wait a minute, there were other difficulties in this church that needed to be addressed, and love was going to be the requirement to do so. And two of those threats that we'll see as we go on, one was pride. And the antidote to pride was to imitate the loving humility of Christ. The other issue was infighting. Iodia and Syntyche. Sorry, gals. Sorry you're named. But we need to hear that their issues are our issues. Our issues are theirs. And love covers these things. And so the rest of the letter really unpacks how one exercises love and righteousness in these discerning ways. We can still become more skilled in love. And the last thing here, verse 11, filled the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Our last point is this. All of our desires, all of our ambitions for growth and maturity should be for God's glory and praise. I'll tell you something. I missed this in my early years of my Christian life. I absolutely did. I wanted to grow in knowledge and love and all of the virtues and become more and more Christ-like so people would look at me and say, oh, Eric's got it. Look at that young man. I did not do it for the praise and the glory of Christ. This is something God has worked on in me over the years. And I want to show you how Paul did this in his own life. He uses this interesting word right in verse 1 where he refers to he and Timothy as maybe servants in your Bible. But the Greek word behind it is douloi, which means a bondservant, a slave. And so in the ancient world, a common practice was that you could essentially put yourself into indentured servitude. It's referred to oftentimes in Scripture as slavery. It's closer to employment than it is the United States' history with slavery. Not exactly. Probably those of you who are military and you signed a commission for a certain number of years, kind of like that. That was the practice. And so Paul, when he is referring to himself here in the letter, he refers to he and Timothy as bond slaves. In other words, 
We are not prisoners of the state. We are slaves of God most high. He had learned how to take his circumstance and invert it in his mind. You think you're doing this to me? You think I'm under your thumb? I'm in the grip of God's grace. I'm not your slave. I'm his slave. He had learned to be able to turn his circumstance around and to do all things for the glory and the praise of Christ Jesus. We got lots ahead of us in this service. We're done for today. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, this book is a feast. Nourish us well. I pray that by your spirit, you would break down our defenses. You would show us our pride. You would show us our failings. Then you would create in us an appetite and a desire to be saturated with Christ. That we'd be able to say with Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But I am committed to Christ Jesus. Teach us, Lord, continually from your word and draw our hearts more and more to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.